Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Bailey Gifford stage. This morning's lecture is part of the Cambridge University series, which, as your presence here indicates, has proven to be immensely popular. Our speaker today is lecturer, director of studies, and consultant transplant surgeon. He has a string of papers on transplantation issues to his name, and is here today to enlighten and fascinate us on recent innovations in this field. Ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Kurosh Saeed Parsi. Thank you very much for that introduction. My name is Kurosh Saeed Parsi, and um, as Pete kindly said, I'm a transplant surgeon. I also run a research group focused on transplantation. What I'd like to do today is to talk to you a little bit about the future of transplantation, some of the exciting and innovative aspects that are facing us at the moment, using which we'll hopefully be able to help patients in the future. But I also want to talk about some of the difficulties, some of the dilemmas, some of the ethical and legal issues that are intertwined with these innovations in transplantation. What I'd like to do as we go along is perhaps ask your opinion on some of these by asking you to show hands while we discuss through the various topics. What I'll aim to do is also to finish with at least 15 minutes to go so that there is time for discussion and questions if you so wish. Great. Well, the idea of transplantation, the idea that we can take organs from one person and transplant them into another person, or from one animal into another animal, isn't actually new. On the left, we have a depiction of a chimera. This was described in Homer's Odyssey, 9th century BC. The idea was that you could take head of an animal and transplant it into another animal. So we have always been, humanity has always been fascinated with this idea of transplantation. The first recorded text which mentions transplantation is from the 4th century BC, in which, myth has it, a Chinese surgeon successfully swapped the heart of two soldiers. The first religious um, association with transplantation is from the 3rd century AD, where Saints Cosmos and Damien, who are the patron saints of transplantation, were noted to have transplanted the leg from an Ethiopian slave into a soldier who had lost his leg in battle. Again, myth has it that this was a successful transplant. But really, we don't see the first successful example of either tissues or cells being transplanted from one person to another person until 1818, where the first successful blood transfusion was performed. As soon as books, very appropriate for this gathering, um, became available to all, we can see that the primitive media was also very engaged with transplantation. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is one of the popular books in which the potential, but also the potential horrors of 
uh, transplanting organs from one person to another person were depicted in 1831. The first successful bone transplant from a person to a person was done in 1878. A few years after, bone transplants were performed from a dog into, a, uh, into the skull of a boy who had uh, fractured his skull. Turn of the last century, 1905, was when the first uh, corneal transplant was done. But really, the transplantation of a, a complex organ like a kidney was not done until, until 1954. Now, this transplant was successful, but it was between identical twins. What we see then in the 1960s is a real uh, acceleration in advancement of transplantation with transplantation of organs such as livers, hearts, lungs, and pancreas. More recently, we've seen transplantation of small bowel and also things like heart, um, hand transplants, facial transplants, and very recently, uterus transplantation. So today, we're fortunate to be in a position to be able to transplant a whole series of organs. Now, it is very clear, and the evidence shows, that transplantation is a life-saving treatment. For many patients who are unfortunate enough to have failure of their organs, such as their heart or their liver, unfortunately, there is no alternative to transplantation. There are no successful treatments beyond transplantation, and the alternative to transplantation is, unfortunately, death. Now, for some other organs, like a failing kidney, we have alternatives, such as dialysis. Or patients who have pancreatic failure, we call that diabetes, there is the option of having insulin. But even for those patients, it is very clear that transplantation both increases the duration of life, it's life-saving, but very importantly, it also increases the quality of life. So there is no doubt that somebody who has an organ failure would be better off to have a transplant, even if alternative treatments are available. Transplant saves lives. Now, in the UK last year, we performed approximately four and a half transplants. 4,500 transplants over the last year. <laughs> four, it feels like 4,500 transplants over, um, over the last year. Now, there are about 10,000 patients at any one time on the transplant waiting list. Some of those patients are what we call suspended for a variety of reasons, usually because they are unwell, they're not actually ready to be receiving a transplant. What we have here is, the, is a disparity between the number of people who need a transplant, a life-saving transplant, and the number of people who are able to get it. Every year in the UK, about 1,200 patients, 100 patients every month, die either on the waiting list or they're removed from the transplant waiting list because they're too sick. 100 patients a month. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's not too bad. 100 patients a month, that's not a large number, compared to number of deaths from cancer or from heart disease. But there is a fundamental difference here. We have, successful, we have access to successful treatments. These patients who are dying on the transplant waiting list could be having life-saving uh, treatment. That's different from some other conditions, such as cancer, where we don't have 
the appropriate treatment. This is the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing once every three months on a regular basis. We know it's going to happen. We know those, those people are going to die. We know what to do about it, but we are not addressing it. This is a tragic scenario. And one of the things that I want to talk about is our approaches to dealing with this problem. The other thing to bear in mind, that this number that I've just given you, 100 patients dying every month, is really only the tip of the iceberg. In fact, we don't list the vast majority of patients for transplant, because the likelihood of them getting a uh, transplant is so low that there is no point in listing them for transplant. So the, the absolute number of people to, uh, that would benefit from transplantation is much higher. I want to give you two examples, okay? One is in liver transplantation. Now, we have fairly high tr threshold for when we accept somebody on the transplant waiting list. We accept somebody on the liver transplant waiting list if we think that with a transplant, they have a likelihood of survival of 50% at five years. What that means is that if we see a patient and we think the risk, the likelihood of them being alive with a transplant after five years is 30%, they have a one in three chance of being alive, we don't list them for transplantation. That, to put it very bluntly, is a death sentence for that patient. Now, the reason we do that is simply because we don't have enough organs that are available and we have to make judgments. Now, compare that to cancer, which I just talked about. We give very expensive um, treatments to patients who have cancer, where the benefit is only a matter of a few months. And the society judges that, of course, those patients should be getting those treatments, even if it means they will live for an extra few months. So when you see, when we compare that to transplantation, the bar is extremely high. And this is a consequence of us not having um, access to enough organs. The other example I want to give is about the treatment of diabetes. We can now do successful pancreas transplants or islet transplants. These are the pancreas is the organ that produces insulin. We can do pancreas and islet transplants for treatment of type 1 diabetes. It is a major operation, but it is successful. Last year in the UK, we did about 300 pancreas or islet transplants. 300. The number of patients with type 1 diabetes in the UK is 300,000. So we, in fact, treat one in every thousand patients who would potentially benefit from this, um, from this treatment. So transplantation is successful, but we have a long way to go. Now, one of the... Um, one of the solutions to this short, uh, shortage of organs is, of course, to have more people donate their organs for transplantation after they die. Now, befitting to our venue here in Wales, there was a change in the law recently in Wales, whereby the idea is that everybody is deemed to be on the organ donor register unless they decide otherwise. It's called an opt-out system, whereby everybody is an organ donor unless they say, I don't want to be an organ donor. The situation in England, and previously in Wales, was different in that you would have to opt in to become an organ donor. 
What I'm interested in is to find out how many people would feel that it should be, the law should be changed so that we also move to an opt-in, uh, sorry, opt-out system. In other words, everybody should be on the organ donor register unless they decline. Can you please put your hands up if you think the law should be changed? Fantastic, thank you. Almost, almost unanimous. Not quite, but almost unanimous. And when you think about it, that seems like a good idea. Why not? If you don't want to donate your organs, you will still have the chance to, um, uh, to opt out. Now, when you speak to transplant physicians and clinicians like myself, actually, we don't think this is going to make that much of a difference. And I explain why. The main reason why we are fail to um, obtain as many organs as we could do isn't because families refuse consent for organ donation. If we look back at Spain, which has the highest donation rate in the world, they changed their law to become an opt-out system, as we've been discussing, in the 1970s. Do you know what happened to the rate of organ donation for the next seven years in Spain after the law was changed? Nothing. It made no impact whatsoever. What started making an impact was the investment in infrastructure that is required to support organ donation. And this means, for example, having the resources to be able to keep a patient who is legally dead on an intensive care unit for an extra 24 hours in order to allow the process of organ donation to take place to have that spare capacity in the system so that that intensive care bed can be occupied by that person for another 24 hours, to have the specially and appropriately trained people to identify those potential donors and to mobilize resources in order to um, obtain organs from that donors. So while the changing the law may make a difference, the feeling is that it probably is not one of the main things that uh, will have an impact on organ donation. But what will be very interesting is to see what happens in Wales and the rest of the country. We're looking to see what the data shows in about a year's time or so. Now, so we need additional resources to be able to transplant more organs. What I want to also talk about next is the type of people and potential donors that we could be taking organs from. So I'm going to walk you, everybody through a scenario by giving you information about a particular donor. I would like you to put your hands up if you would consider accepting a kidney from this donor to be transplanted either into yourself or into a loved one. Okay? So the first donor is an unfortunate 24-year-old who has been previously fit and well, no medical history, no history of smoking, no alcohol use, no illicit drug use, so a perfect healthy donor who has sadly had a road traffic accident and is on the organ donor register and is going to donate an organ. So a 24-year-old healthy donor. Who would accept organs from this donor? Everybody. Right. Can I ask you to keep your hands up? Because I'm going to now change, this, change the story. 
Now, imagine exactly the same scenario, but this is now not a 24-year-old donor. This is a 64-year-old donor. Okay? Everybody still would accept this, the, the, the organs from this donor. Now, I tell you that this donor has a long history of diabetes. So therefore, we expect there will be some organ damage. Some hands are coming down. Okay. What if I told you that this donor now um, also had a history of brain cancer, and in fact, is died not from a road traffic accident, but from a brain cancer. They have a tumor in their head, which potentially might spread to, to the people who receive the transplant. Okay. Some hands are going down. What if I also tell you now that actually the kidneys from this donor aren't quite working right. So they're not perfect kidneys. <laughs> okay, there's maybe a dozen hands still left over. Thank you very much. Now, we had two extremes. The 24-year-old healthy donor who has no past medical history and the older donor who has a series of medical problems. Which do you think is the much more common type of donor we have. It's the older donor. Because of a variety of um, initiatives, both medical and otherwise, actually very healthy donors are extremely unusual these days. The vast majority of our donors are actually donors that have these um, previous health problems, history of cancer, history of smoking, history of uh, uh, previous infections or uh, medical conditions. These type of donors are almost the, the most common type of donors that we use organs for. And the outcome from these donations and from these transplantations, as a general rule, are very good. But we have not uncommon scenarios like this, where we have a disease, um, a cancer, or a problem being transmitted from the donor to the recipient. Now, this makes it very difficult in terms of decision-making at the time of transplantation, in terms of discussions with the patient, in terms of consent. Now, you also have to be aware that the vast majority of transplants take place in the middle of the night or outside hours at very short notice. So you have a scenario whereby you have an, an organ available from a potential donor that is associated with a number of risks. Now, these risks aren't actually very well quantified. Okay? We only really have best guesses at what the risks will be to the recipient. We know that the donor has a history of diabetes, or we know that the donor has a history of smoking, but we don't know precisely what it means to that recipient. Now, we then have to have a, a difficult conversation with the recipients as to whether they want to accept this organ or not. Now, we, as transplant clinicians, find it difficult to assimilate this information. And you can imagine how much more difficult it is for a patient to make a judgment on, um, on these aspects. But it is important that these discussions are had because there are potentially real consequences for patients. We have a scenario whereby somebody has been on a transplant waiting list for months or years, 
and they're called in for a transplant. And then they're being told at the last minute, look, actually these organs aren't perfect, and these are the potential risks, and they have to um, decide whether they want to go ahead with that or not. And, pe and patients feel, have a variety of opinions. Some people are so um, unwilling to accept any risks from, for example, transmission of cancer, that actually they would say, look, the, the donor that I just, the hypothetical donor we talked about with the brain cancer, we think the risk of transmission of that tumor to the patient, to the recipient, is about 2%. So two or less of every 100 recipients who get a transplant from a donor with a brain cancer may get a tumor. Now that potentially is a very bad and lethal outcome. They may die from it. But the flip side of that coin is that actually if you are on a waiting list for a kidney, or the population on average, the risk of dying while waiting for a kidney transplant is about one in 10 every year anyway. So you have to then balance the risk of waiting for a better organ compared to accepting an organ which may give you cancer. This is a difficult scenario. It is a difficult scenario, and unfortunately, sadly, bad consequences do happen, as is depicted in this particular case. Now, we have to, as a society, have mechanisms for dealing with these consequences. Okay? The patient here, of course, has come to harm. So one of the things that becomes very important to think about is not just the ethical considerations of how much information should be divulged, for example, to the, to the recipients, how, how much uh, choice everybody should have about what organs they accept, but also the consequence of what does the law say about transplantation? What happens if things go wrong as far as um, transplants is concerned? I've already touched on how the law views um, uh, transplantation in terms of uh, opting in or opting out. But I want to take uh, another, another scenario. Can I ask you to put your hands up if you think this is a product which is subject to the Consumer Act? Who thinks an iPad is a product? Okay, most people would go and buy, buy an iPad. Okay. Who thinks this is a product? Okay, most people. This is a blood bag. Blood. Who thinks blood is a product? Some people. And a kidney. Who thinks kidney is a product? A handful of people. Well, there is debate on this. There are some um, academic and expert lawyers that interpret current law to say that actually organs are covered by the, consumer product, uh, the Product Consumers Act as products. And they are subject to the reassurance of the same reassurance that an iPad is. And I'll tell you what the consequences of that are. There is something called a product liability um, concept. And this is a very um, fair uh, way of looking at products in, um, a, in a fair society. What it means is that if you buy this iPad, 
Okay? And let's say it blows up in your hand and it causes you some harm. Then the manufacturer, the producer of that product, is liable to reimburse you for the loss that you have suffered. And the reason that it is the producer that reimburses you for that harm is because producers, manufacturers, as a general rule, have vastly greater resources. The concept is that harm has been done. The person who has received harm, well, you know, they may lose their, uh, they may lose their job. They may have, there may be consequences for their family. So it is important that that harm is uh, is put right. It's a no-blame concept. The idea is not to say that the producer of this organ was at fault or did something wrong. The concept is, was the harm done? Yes. In that case, a fair society should try and redress that balance. And it's very reasonable. But if I take you back to the scenario that we were having with a kidney transplant where cancer is being transmitted and maybe some, uh, the, the unfortunate recipient dies as a consequence of that, well, if a kidney is a product, then a consequence could be that in law, somebody is responsible for that harm. Okay? And there will be a producer, a manufacturer for this kidney, and that this harm should be put right, and there should be compensation for that. Now, this is an interesting concept that has potential implications for us, for both the society, but also for transplant physicians and transplant surgeons, but also for patients. This underpins this concept that actually the vast majority of organs that we transplant aren't perfect organs. They are what we call second-hand organs. They have already led a life, long or short, and they have been exposed to a series of risks. And as a society, we need to have mechanisms in place to ensure that we um, are able to transplant as many people as safely as possible, but um, be able to deal with the consequences also. Now, one other important ethical consideration is that of paid donation, okay? Should we allow people to pay for organs? Can I ask you to put your hands up if you think buying and selling organs should be legal? Okay, half a dozen patients, half a dozen people. Freudian slip. <laughs> now, this, on the face of it, seems like a very straight choice. You can think, well, actually, why should people be allowed to pay for organs? Because this, if, they, if, if we do make it legal, then this leads to exploitation. It will be the poor people who will be selling their organs, and it will be the rich people who will buy them from. And that, one might argue, is, is, is unjust. But one has to think about what are the consequences of not allowing this in some countries. Now, I'm not arguing for it, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here. What we need to do is look to some other countries where there is a real shortage of organs, and the infrastructure that we are so, uh, so lucky to have in the UK doesn't exist. So when you look at some other uh, countries in the Middle East or in the Far East, what you find is that there is a black market in um, organ donations. These 
are the prices where people pay to receive an organ in these different countries, you know, ranging from a few thousand dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, this black market organ transplantation really does lead to very, very significant exploitation. What proportion of this money do you think actually goes to the donor? Very, very little, less than a few percentage. It goes to unscrupulous middlemen, often doctors and surgeons and hospitals, who are exploiting people's real fear and need for a life-saving treatment. I actually don't blame people who will do anything to get an organ transplant for their daughter to save their life or for their son to save life. That is a natural instinct. But when the mechanism doesn't exist for the society to regulate that or to provide alternatives, you can end up with very bad consequences. There is one country in the world that has attempted to regulate this, to allow paid donation, but actually put it in the hands of the state. That country is Iran, who for a number of years have had a system of paid donation run by the government. There are pros and cons to this system, and there are opponents and, um, and um, people who are in favor of this donation. But what the health system in Iran argued was that actually they were going to have a black market in organ donation, like other places, unless they're regulated. So what happens there is that you, a, do, a donor sells their organ not to a particular person, but they sell their organ to the state, to the healthcare system, whereby that person is properly assessed to see where they are fit to become an organ donor. The operation is carried in a controlled manner with the appropriate care. The money that's given, all of it goes to the donor, and the donor, at least in principle, gets health benefits and health insurance for, for, for their future. So this is their attempt for, um, to regulate paid donation and, provide, uh, and prevent the, uh, the black market. Now, there's lots of commentary on this, and there are uh, arguments that the system does work or it doesn't work. I think the fact remains that still people that donate their organs are people who are financially poorly off. But nonetheless, I'm bringing this up to highlight that actually even what may appear very a simple choice to start with actually often isn't the case. Now, what about technology? What about science? What are the things that we are doing right now in order to be able to increase the number of organs that we can transplant and improve their quality of the organs? One of the important advances in recent years is the idea of machine perfusion of organs. What this means is that what if we could take a, an organ, like a kidney or a uh, liver or a heart, and we could put it on a machine and perfuse it with blood, with oxygenated blood, to try and improve its quality. Sounds pretty science fiction, but actually, like most good ideas, it's a very old idea. So what we have here is two pioneers from the uh, turn of the last century. Charles Lindbergh, who was, the, who was a pilot and an engineer, was the first person who did uh, the solo transatlantic flight. And Alexis Carell, on, on the right, who um, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine, who was a surgeon and con is considered as the father of transplantation. Lindbergh 
had a sister who had heart uh, failure. And as an um, engineer, he thought, well, the heart is a pump. Surely there must be a way of making a mechanical pump or extending the life of this biological pump. And the two of them undertook a huge amount of exciting work to try and culture organs or keep organs alive. And on the bottom right, we see some of the early um, examples of an organ chamber. So this idea of perfusing organs actually is not that new. It's been around for at least 100, 100 years, if not more. But actually, this is now reality. What you see on the left here is how we have maintained kidneys for the last 50 years. That is an organ transport box. And you will be surprised, horrified how simple it is. It's a polystyrene box with ice in it. What we do is we take a kidney, we flush it with a special solution, and we put it on this ice to keep it cold, in the same way that you would keep your sausages cold in the, in the fridge to stop them going off. And that's what we've done for a better part of uh, half a century. And actually, it is successful. But what we can do now is to perfuse kidneys on machines now. What you see on the left here is a depiction of a machine which um, was invented by Professor Michael Nicholson, who's one of the transplant surgeons in Cambridge. And what we have here is a little uh, chamber that the kidney is put in. There is blood flowing through this into a reservoir. The blood is pumped around. It's given oxygen, and it goes through a warming circuit. And the idea is that you can perfuse this kidney with warm, oxygenated blood. I'll show you a little video. So what you can see is the, the blood pipe, oops, apologies. You will see the blood pipe being um, divided here so that it can be connected to the kidney. That's a kidney that's been connected. That's the blood going in through the artery. That's just to let some of the air out. There's the kidney. You've got the vein and the ureter. That's the vein. You can see the sort of the, the siphoning effect, the suctioning effect. And what you'll see in a minute is that this kidney actually begins to function. It produces urine. This is urine coming out from this kidney. What we can do is put this kidney on a machine and then try and test it to see whether this kidney is likely to work if it's transplanted. So when we go back to that story of a 64-year-old who has a history of diabetes and maybe some uh, poor function, this could be one of the ways of trying assess to see whether this kidney is likely to work or not. Now, we can do this not just with kidneys now, but also with hearts, lungs, and livers. So a couple of quick videos. That is a human heart that is being pumped on a machine. This is a technique that was developed by uh, Stephen Large, who's one of the cardiothoracic surgeons in, um, in Papworth, in Cambridge. And what we can do is we can take a human heart, put it on a machine, and get it to reanimate and actually pump blood and use that to assess the quality of this organ or recondition the organ. What we see on the right here is a video of a human lung 
that again is similarly being perfused. And as you can see, it's inflating and deflating. You can see the organ functioning. You can assess it. You can do tests on it. And we can do the same thing with livers. We can do the same thing with intestine. We can do the same thing with pancreases. Now, this gives us the opportunity to be able to, first of all, assess the organs to see whether they are suitable for transplantation or not. We could potentially recondition them, improve their quality by delivering oxygen and nutrients to them. We could treat them with drugs to try and improve their condition. Or we could just simply preserve them for longer. We can extend the time that these organs could survive outside the body before they have to be transplanted. Now, these are emerging technologies that are actually in use today. I was on call this weekend, and we had, I did two kidney transplants, and actually one of the kidneys we put on the machine that I showed you in order to, see, uh, to, to improve its quality before transplantation. So these are real advances that are taking place now. But these advances also bring with them questions and issues to be resolved. These technologies are costly. We need to have a mechanism to be able to fund these advances. We need to be able to demonstrate, using studies, that these technologies aren't simply toys for the boys, but actually these are beneficial and are de delivering um, good outcomes to patients. And in order to be, be able to do that, we need to be able to do studies whereby we may put some of these organs on these machines, transplant them, but then find that actually the, the outcomes are not as good as we hoped. Well, this is risk to patients because it is a technology which is new and perhaps is not fully validated. Now, the other thing that um, is, I think, an exciting development uh, in transplantation is the idea of using stem cells to heal, replace, uh, or help with the recovery of organ functions. Now, stem cells are special cells in our body that have the ability to renew, regenerate, in other words, make more of themselves, but also be turned into cells of different tissue types. So the idea is this, as depicted in, in this cartoon, is let's say that I have diabetes. The idea is that you could maybe take some of my cells, take the stem cells or convert those cells into stem cells, and then in the laboratory manipulate those cells and turn them into cells that are producing insulin, and then transplant those cells into me in order to treat my diabetes. You could also use those cells for a whole number of other reasons, to study disease, to study new um, drugs and new um, technologies such as genetic manipulation. So this stem cell therapy or regenerative medicine has fantastic um, potential. But at this stage, this is potential as opposed to reality. There are an, a large number of trials that are being conducted to see whether such technologies are actually benefiting patients or not. Now, if we look at something like diabetes, where the problem is these insulin-producing cells, it is possible to generate these cells and then transplant them into me and then see whether they will treat my diabetes. And in fact, there is a trial in the United States that are already being done. But when we go to 
more complex tissues, such as a heart or a kidney, whereby you've got a three-dimensional structure, which is very complex, and you've got multiple cell types. In reality, we're still years, if not decades, away from being able to grow these organs in, in a lab to a stage that they can be transplanted. There are uh, techniques that are being developed. Everybody's heard about 3D printing or 3D bioprinting. In the same way that we can print little uh, plastic tools and uh, devices, well, actually, it is possible to print, use the same type of technology to print at least reasonably complex um, three-dimensional, uh, I wouldn't call them organs, but sort of structures. And the idea is that you can place these cells in specific locations. And you may be able to print a scaffold, as shown on the, on the left here, of an ear, which then you can repopulate with these stem cells that we've talked about. So the idea is that you create, if you like, the scaffold for the particular organ, and then you seed it with these cells. That's an exciting uh, approach, which almost certainly, at least for simple organs, will be, uh, will be effective in the future. Another exciting technology is called decellularization. Everybody will recognize that is a picture of a heart, okay? but it looks odd, it looks white. What's happened to this heart is that it's been perfused with a series of enzymes, think of them as detergents, where all the cells have been washed out of this organ, and all you're left with is the sort of fibrous skeleton of this heart. So there are no living cells in this heart, just the fibrous tissue, the connective tissue, the structure, the scaffold. And the idea is that you may be able to, to then repopulate this scaffold with cells, stem cells, that then sit on this scaffold and actually start generating um, an organ that is functional. So we are some, some time away from this, but this is something that we are doing at least on a smaller scale using smaller organs in animal models, for example. So these are um, exciting areas of transplantation that probably within our lifetime will bear fruit. Now, the other interesting question that we are often asked is what about transplanting organs from animals to humans? Okay, again, this is not um, a new idea. I showed you a timeline of transplantation. What I didn't show there is that for most of the transplants that I mentioned, there are examples of transplants being done either between animals or from animals to humans, including blood transfusion, tr uh, transplanting uh, baboon hearts into children, uh, baboon livers into children. Now, if you take... Um, a, um, an animal like a pig, actually many of the organs, like the heart or the kidneys or the livers, are similarly sized uh, compared to a human and anatomically are transplantable. But there are significant issues with these. One of the main issues with um, what we call xenotransplantation, so transplanting organs from animals to humans, is a risk of infection. Animals have certain uh, viruses and infections that we, our immune system is not 
experienced in dealing with. So that's a major concern that if we were to transplant these organs, whether we introduce new infections into humans, which could have a major um, health impact, not just on the person who's receiving the transplant, but actually spread within, within the population. That's one issue. The other important issue is the issue of rejection. As you might expect, if we transplant an organ from one person to another person, the immune system will recognize that new organ as foreign and will reject it. There was the idea that, well, could we genetically, genetically manipulate these animals so that they didn't express, they didn't have the molecules on them that would um, allow rejection? And actually, animals have been engineered, including pigs, that are genetically modified to stop them being rejected. But it turns out, fortunately or unfortunately, that the immune system is much more clever than that. And actually, by removing one or two molecules that we thought were really important, we have not been able to crack this idea of making these organs universally available. So while this remains as a possibility for the future, we still have some time to go. Transplantation is a life-saving treatment. We are fortunate in the UK to be able to offer this to many of our patients, but the sad fact remains that we are not nearly meeting the, the potential that, that there is for this life-saving treatment. I think future approaches require coming together of science, technology, but importantly, ethical considerations, law, society, in order to help us navigate through what is going to be an increasingly complex road to helping our patients. And the input, the opinion, and the engagement with people like yourselves is absolutely critical in helping us achieve the potential of transplantation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My clock tells me we have 13 minutes and 50 seconds, so if there are any questions, I am very happy to answer some questions. Gentlemen here in the front. Thanks for a fascinating talk. Uh, could you comment on, uh, we've heard from Stephen Fry time and again at this festival about the impact of driverless cars. I was just wondering your thoughts on the uh, impact that might have on transplant uh, you know, risks. Thank you. You make a very important point. Um, the number of our donors that currently are coming from um, road traffic accidents is actually vanishingly small. That 24-year-old donor who has died in a road traffic accident, I would say I maybe have transplanted two, three of those donors. The technology at the moment is, is such that most patients survive road traffic ac accidents and actually don't go on to become uh, um, living uh, deceased donors. But that is an example of a technology will, which will inevitably lead to more and more of our organs coming from donors that have died of disease as opposed to our accidents. So that's one example of technology. Another example of the technology would be better um, care of de uh, delivery of care at the roadside, 
which means patients that would have previously died will now survive and not become organ donors. That, of course, is a fantastic development, but it does mean that that technology and others will result in more and more of our organs coming from older donors who are dying of heart disease or diabetes. Um, um, thank you very yes. much indeed for the, for the talk. Um, I've got a question about live kidney donation. I've heard it said that um, live kidney donors actually live longer than people who keep both their kidneys because of all the ongoing continual medical surveillance. Any evidence for that? Yes. Thank you for that question. So of, of the... Um, Last year, of the 4,500 transplants that we did, about 1,000 transplants, vast majority kidney transplant, came from living donors, as you say. So these are mum donating kidney to a daughter or spouse and so on. And in fact, I, one of the operations I do is to take kidneys from a living donor and uh, transplant them into a recipient. So that has a number of issues. First of all, the living donor does not need that operation. Okay? Now, this is a, it's a difficult scenario. When I became a doctor, I took a Hipp Hippocratic oath to, to say that I would first do no harm. The fact of the matter is that the deceased, the, the operation that I did yesterday in Cambridge, where I took kidneys from a, um, from a son to be donated to, to his mum, has a risk of death of approximately one in two and a half thousand. So I exposed that patient to risk of death of one in two and a half thousand with no physical benefit whatsoever to that patient. There is a whole ethical consideration there, should we be doing this or not? But going back to your question, it is true that people who donate kidneys actually live longer than the average population and have better health. Now, the reason for that is that we have very strict criteria in who we accept to become a, a, a living donor, a kidney donor. By the time you get through the, through the assessment process, you will have been checked very thoroughly. We know that you don't have diabetes, we don't have that you don't smoke, we know that you're not too overweight and you don't have heart disease, you don't have high blood pressure. So actually you are a very healthy individual. So if you then take that healthy individual and compare it with the rest of the population who have all these other conditions, it is true that the people who donate kidneys will live longer than the average uh, person. But the important question is, do they live longer than if they had not donated the kidney? And that answer is not known. <laughs> thank you. Uh, lady over here. Thank, um, thank, you for very, thank you for a very interesting talk. I'm fascinated by the idea of the stem cell technology and also growing organs. Yes. Maybe very futuristic at the moment. Presumably, you would have to take the DNA from the person who's receiving it in order to grow that for it to match. But is there any scope in 3D printing um, in the future um, stem cells? So absolutely. So uh, those technologies, the biotechnology of 3D printing or creating scaffolds, coming together with the, uh, t the technology and the availability of stem cells is what I think is going to deliver this uh, really uh, exciting potential. But you're right. What the idea would be is to have stem cells, which then we use to generate large quantities of cells. I showed that picture of the heart. Well, I mean, we, the, the sort of numbers of cells that we would need to be able to repopulate that cell, currently we don't really have the infrastructure and mechanism for generating those. But the idea is that those cells will come from stem cells, and then we would be able to print them directly onto a scaffold or actually be able to populate those uh, scaffolds 
um, with, with those stem cells. But, but you're absolutely right. The issue of rejection is still there. If you take my stem cells and you manipulate them uh, in, a, in a laboratory and then transplant them back into me, we have always assumed that actually my immune system wouldn't reject those organs. One of the lines of research that I do in my laboratory is to really test whether that is the case. Because, of course, when you take a cell, you manipulate it in a laboratory for three months, and then you put those cells back, those cells aren't exactly the same cells that you started with. And as I alluded to, the immune system is very clever and quite often can recognize that there's something fishy about these cells and will reject them. Thank you. Um, lady over there. Thank you so much for your talk. It was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I was just wondering, what were your eth ethical views on xenotransplantation for animals and humans as well? Absolutely. So, so that is another uh, really important issue uh, that, that I didn't touch on. I strongly believe that we, as a society, we have a duty and a moral obligation, an ethical obligation, to protect the rights of animals as well as the rights of humans. So we have a difficult choice to make. If xenotransplantation was possible, transplanting from pigs to, to humans, then we as a society would have to make a choice and decide whether that is something that we want to pursue. And if we do, we, we would need to, to put in place um, uh, mechanisms to ensure that those animals were treated well and actually didn't come to undue harm. Now, I personally, my research program does involve animal experimentation. So I use animals in, 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 in my studies. But actually, you would be, I think, pleasantly surprised the efforts we make to make sure that the animals that we use in research don't, uh, aren't, um, uh, don't experience pain or harm in the same way that our human uh, patients do. So we, for example, make sure that the animals are well cared for and they have appropriate uh, painkillers and so on. So we are again fortunate in the UK to value animal life and animal quality of life as much as humans. So that, but that's, you raise a very important point. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Um, do you see any um, distinction, either ethical, legal, or practical, in terms of the opt-in versus opt-out between the um, donors who are on a life support machine and those who aren't? Because I'd imagine, practically, you can't take organs from someone on a life support machine if their family are... Okay, so, so thank you for that question. It's, it's a very important point. Now, at the moment, the vast majority of organs that we transplant are actually coming from donors who are on a life support machine. Okay? Now, the legal definition of death in this country is very specific, and in fact, in most Western countries, it's very, very specific. And death legally is defined as death of the brain or brain stem. So, in other words, if if a patient's brain is alive, that patient is legally deemed to be alive, and therefore we cannot take organs from a living patient. Okay, so what we would have to do in that sort of scenario is that the life support machine is switched off when the doctors and the family agree that treatment, further treatment is futile. They decide that, look, this patient is not going to recover, and therefore the decision is made independently from the transplant team that the organs are going to be, sorry, that the life support machine is going to be switched off. What happens is that then the life support mach machine is switched off. If the patient then 
has a cardiac arrest and the circulation stops. That patient is then certified to be dead and then the organs are taken for transplantation. That's one scenario. The other scenario is the case whereby you have somebody on life support machine, but actually that patient is brainstem dead. We do specific tests to, sh to show that this, the brain of this person doesn't function. Now, in that sort of scenario, that donor is legally dead. Okay? Their heart may be pumping on a life support machine, um, but they are legally dead and they have no brain activity. Now, in those cases, what we are able to do is to take that donor on a life support machine to an operating theater and start taking the organs while the organs are still well perfused. Both patients are dead, but there is an important difference between how death is diagnosed. Now, those have ethical implications, and also they have um, scientific implications. In the first case that I mentioned, whereby we switch off the ventilator and wait for that patient to, if you like, have a heart attack, or not a heart attack, cardiac arrest, and then we take them to theater, you can imagine that you switch off the, the, the machine, the heart stops, then there's a five-minute period where nobody does anything, then the team will certify that donor as dead, then they will get taken to an operating theater, and there is a transplant team waiting to retrieve those organs. That process may take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, during which the organs are not perfused with oxygenated blood. And that means that those organs perform less well when we transplant them than they would have done otherwise. So the process has implications for the outcomes. Now, one of the, one of the issues that we're trying to deal with at the moment is, what if you could give a drug to this donor before you switch it off the ventilator? That would improve the quality of the organs. Who thinks we should be able to do that? Hands up if you think we should be able to do it. Okay, thank you. Almost unanimous. Well, I can tell you that giving a drug to the donor before you switch off the ventilator to protect the organs currently is illegal. The reason for that is that you're not giving that drug to treat that donor. The purpose of that drug is not for the benefit of that patient. And the law currently says if you are incapacitated, if you're unconscious, you can only be given treatments that are for your benefit, not for the benefit of somebody else. So this is, the point you raise, gives us another example of a very difficult ethical and moral and legal issue as to what should we be doing. We have these 1,200 patients dying every year. We could be giving a drug which won't have any harm to these donors and could save lives. Should the law should the society allow that sort of thing to happen? Thank you. There's a question here, I think. Hello. I just wanted to ask about the 4,500 um, transplants that yes. took place last year. Do you know a percentage of the, um, the organ failures that were caused by lifestyle choices? And do you think that's an area that we should be focusing on as well as trying to improve the rates of transplantation? Thank you very much. You raise a very important point. Two things is that the, there are cases that is often are kind of uh, very um, 
publicized or, or in the media whereby you have patients who have liver transplants because of alcohol abuse, for example, or people who have uh, liver failure because they've, they've uh, used intravenous drug and they've got hepatitis as a consequence of that. So there are some cases where um, the disease is directly linked to a lifestyle choice. Now, I can't give you specific percentages on that, but I can tell you that those sort of examples are probably only a very small proportion. But when we, when we take the broader con context of actually um, people who are smoking or people who um, have, um, uh, you know, perhaps are overweight and therefore ha get diabetes or get organ failure, the proportion of lifestyle that contributes to disease is very significant. At the moment, and I personally think this is right, in a fair society, we don't make a distinction. We don't say that actually if you've been drinking alcohol and you've got liver failure, you shouldn't get a liver transplant. Now, we have stipulations to say that you should have stopped drinking, you should engage in a rehabilitation program, there should, uh, there should be evidence that you're not going to do that again. But we don't say that actually just because your disease is from alcohol, you should be less prioritized. And I think this is important to think about because one of the solutions could be, well, let's give the livers that we are short of to people who haven't caused it themselves. Now, that goes against, I think, the ethos of medicine and ethos of uh, delivering the best care in a fair society. And I explain why. Well, if we go down that route, Will we then say, well, actually, if you've been smoking, you get sort of low-priority treatment? Do we say if you've not done exercise or if you've been overweight? Or do we say if you've had an accident because you were driving too fast, um, that then you wouldn't get uh, priority? So it is an important issue. But at the moment, we don't um, penalize people for their lifestyle choices. But your point that we should be investing time, energy, resources, and education into trying to prevent or reduce disease is very important, as well as treating the outcomes of disease. Could I, uh, could I ask a question relating to the moral dimension, dimension, which you began to explore at the beginning? And, and although transplant tourism, no, transplants abroad, already exists. The options for transplant tourism are increasing year by year. That's right. I give two, 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 two examples. Two years ago, um, a long-time acquaintance came to stay with us, and I learned that he'd had a transplant. Uh, within two weeks of needing it, a new liver. And he was doing very well. Yes. In all probability, in the country from which he came, that, that own, or, do, organ was donated by somebody who had chosen to die on the operating table rather than to die by a bullet for some crime which is not, does not carry the death penalty in Britain yes. but, um, rather, and have his parents pay for the, um, for the bullet and the, and, and yes. the burial. Uh, and the, the second example, um, I've come across uh, uh, medical ships operating offshore in third world countries which uh, have taken United States free and the United States is extremely good at donating a proportion of, say, its roadkill um, uh, um, organs to, to third world countries. 
a very high proportion. And to see those organs then being carefully selected and placed in, into the people who can pay, uh, who do you think, the question is, who do you think should decide? The individual who can pay, the doctor, or, or our state as to whether our citizens begin to go out and uh, engage in medical tourism? Very, very important point, thank you. So medical tourism in transplantation is something that we also see and we have some of our patients who go to other countries and uh, receive uh, organ transplants. Now, there are a whole series of issues there, both ethical, moral, but also medical. Now, many, you've, you've given examples of what sound like kind of uh, uh, properly uh, conducted transplants with good outcomes. Many of these uh, transplants that are done as part of medical tourism are poorly conducted because the driving force is money rather than uh, the care of the donor or the recipient. They are uh, poorly matched. Uh, the care that is given to the donor or the recipient is suboptimal. And we have very bad outcomes sometimes from our patients who go away and have transplants quickly and come back. So as a general rule, we think that is not uh, an appropriate solution for our patients. But I go back to what I said earlier, is that actually I sympathize with people who want to do that, okay? Because why would you not do everything in your power to save the life of your, your loved one? So I don't think we can judge those people. But in terms of who makes those decisions, I think the answer is us. It's the people in this room. It's the society. It's not the doctors. It's not the surgeons. It's not the government. It's us. These are very complex issues that actually we all need to uh, have influence on. It is us that we need to talk to our uh, politicians, to our doctors, to our MPs, to our uh, ethicists, to our uh, social commentators. And actually we have a solution for this real problem. And actually brushing it under the carpet doesn't work. Because one of the things that that does is make room for exploitation. And what we see unfortunately is often the poor being exploited by the rich. And unless we have mechanisms with dealing with the problems, with providing infrastructure, regulation, then that exploitation will continue forever. We are out of time. Thank you very much for your engagement. Thank you very much. Thank you.